This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. A new paper by Australian scientists find that the number of bushfires in that country is up 40% just since 2007. Another hot summer is just ending in Australia with another round of fires. What does the government do? It hires a thug to fire 110 climate scientists who report on the growing impacts of climate disruption. The premier climate study agency, CSIRO, is being converted into a for-profit tech research agency with industry in mind. Why? The new boss says climate change has already been proven, so why keep all those pesky climate scientists? Unbelievable logic. Over 3,000 scientists around the world have petitioned to stop the carnage at CSIRO. No matter. The government has other fish to fry, literally, as the waters around Australia heat up beyond the survival limits of the famous Great Barrier Reef. That doesn't matter anyway, as the Australian government just approved a massive new coal mine complex and a coal shipping port just a few kilometers from that reef. That's the real reason climate science has to go. It's the coal business, mate. Here is a short bit from the fabulous singer Kathy Matea. Come and listen, you fellas, so young and so fine. And seek not your fortunes in the dark, dreary mines. It will form as a habit and seep in your soul till the stream of your blood runs as black as the coal. Where it's dark as a dungeon and damp as the dew. Where dangers double and pleasures are few. Where the rain never falls and the sun never shines. It's dark as a dungeon way down in the Here to tell us about it is Ellen Roberts of the Australian activist group Get Up. Then we'll visit with Dutch scientist Arjen Hoekstra. His study shows an astounding 4 billion people already experience severe water scarcity for at least part of the year. Then the show wraps up with a follow-up to my investigation into untested nuclear technology springing up all over China. We'll get the view from Hong Kong, the last bastion of free speech, as the nuclear neighborhood gets crowded and dangerous. Welcome to your dose of world news and science this week on Radio EcoShock. There are crazy projects, and then there are plans so dangerous we can't believe any government or corporation would do it. Here is one of those. In Australia, just before Christmas, the government announced approval of a mega coal shipping terminal just a few kilometers from the World Heritage Great Barrier Reef. Australia is busy expanding production with absolutely giant mines to ship more climate-wrecking coal to India. What could go wrong? Here to tell us is Ellen Roberts. She's the Queensland lead organizer for the activist group Get Up. Ellen, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi. Thanks for having me. 
Okay, well, let's get our bearings. For people in other parts of the world, please explain where the newly approved Abbott Point coal facility would be built. Well, as your listeners might know, the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area stretches up the coast of the northern state of Queensland in Australia. And there's a town there called Bowen, basically in the, on the, around the middle of the Queensland coast. Um, and there's plans to expand an existing coal terminal there to facilitate, as you said in your introduction, the exporting of coal from Adani's Carmichael mine. So this port would involve dredging actually in the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area and we've been out there recently and mapped some of the coral communities that are around the site where they're going to dredge. So they'd be dredging there and they'd be dumping that dredge spoil on land in a wetland that's adjacent to the existing coal terminal. So there's some very immediate environmental impacts from the port expansion. There's also um, Aboriginal people who are very concerned about cultural heritage and their special sites in that area. So there's a very immediate impact, but then there's also, of course, the impacts from you know the burning and shipping of coal, which is obviously going to have a huge impact specifically on the Great Barrier Reef. So we're calling on the Australian government um, you know, not, to, not to proceed with the project for a range of environmental reasons. How does coal burning impact the Great Barrier Reef? It's actually a really good question to be discussing right now. In Australia, we're having a very hot summer. As we have had for the past couple of years, Australia is very sensitive to um, any climate change impacts. And what you have when you have an increase in ocean temperatures is you have coral bleaching events, which is when the coral turns white. And if the, if the water temperature is sustained at a higher level for long enough, then it's quite possible that that coral will die. So the projections for the Great Barrier Reef into the future, if we continue on the emissions path that we're on, are very, very dire. We've already lost 50% of the coral in the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area, particularly in the, in the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef, which is around coastal developments. Um, we've already lost so much coral cover, and that's simply projected to escalate, and there's nothing that can really be done to, to shift that. Um, once those climate impacts, once those ocean temperatures are set to increase. So it's literally going to be catastrophic for the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area. And that's a similar situation that we're going to be seeing for coral reefs around the world who, who are you know, very sensitive ecosystems who struggle to cope with shifts in temperatures. And there's obviously not just the coral itself, but like, you know, all the fish and the other wildlife that rely on that very unique and integrated ecosystem. So if we continue, even like like obviously a two-degree rise is catastrophic for the Great Barrier Reef, three degrees is complete destroyer, being completely destroyed. So, you know, the the idea that we're continuing on this path and continue to export coal at this particular point is simply crazy. Yeah, that's the nursery of the ocean, really, those reefs. Well, tell us about this new Carmichael mine that you mentioned. Well, there's plans to open up not just the Carmichael mine, but a whole new coal mine area in in Queensland, which really has a strong focus on thermal coal. But the the opening up of this new coal basin in Australia is being led by Indian company Adani, which is a big resource company that operates ports and power stations in India. So they've got this integrated model where they want to be digging up the coal in Australia, shipping it through their own port and then taking it through their port in India and then burning it in power stations in India. So, you know, what we're seeing here, obviously, it's, you know, there's devastating environmental impacts of having such huge mines in Australia. But Adani is really pushing all of India down a particular path towards coal-fired power. India is really at a crossroads in terms of how they develop their domestic energy systems. 
you know, do they go through coal or do they go down the renewables path? And what Adani is looking at is locking India into decades and decades of polluting coal-fired power. Wow, and I guess you need more railways to move all that coal around? That's absolutely right, yeah. So we've been working on all aspects of this project, including obviously the Carmichael Mine, and then there's also the rail line, which will cut through a number of farming properties in Queensland, and then obviously also the port itself being built in the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area. Not only, as I mentioned, the dredging to build the port, but also the, the effect of increased shipping, passing through the coral reefs, what that might mean for ship strike and just obviously having industrial noise within the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area. So the mine itself, there's the rail line and then there's the port, all disastrous environmentally. And then laid on top of that, of course, you have the massive increase in greenhouse gas emissions from a mine of this size. So, you know, Australia is a huge coal mining country, but this Adani mine would be the biggest in Australia. It's actually not just a single mine, but rather a complex of mines over a very large area in western Queensland. Wasn't there a ship that already got stuck on the reef, a coal ship? I, I can't quite remember. Yeah, there was a, a ship that, that turned over because it's, it's quite difficult. That was in 2007, I think, because it's quite difficult to navigate. There's a number of narrow passages that the ships have to come through in order to get through the Great Barrier Reef. So, you know, there's the coast of Australia and there's a lot of inshore reefs and inshore islands and then you go out to the outer Great Barrier Reef, which is that huge coral reef network off the coast of Australia. And so the ships have to, like, a few passages to get through there. Well, now, here's the kicker, Ellen Roberts. I mean, coal companies in the United States and Europe are right now going bankrupt. Their stock is almost worthless. Nobody wants to invest in them. Why is Australia almost the last place in the developed world to hear that the coal age is over? Well, that's a, that's a really great question. And Adani, for the environment groups that have been working on the Carmichael campaign, has been looking at who is going to fund the mine um, and really targeting them. There was a tour, for example, by two Indigenous leaders whose land is threatened by the Carmichael mine, and they visited a number of banks in the US and Europe telling them not to invest. Tourism operators from Australia that rely on the Great Barrier Reef for their jobs have also toured Deutsche Bank, for example, and addressed those finances, saying, please don't invest in this project. But obviously what's overlaid with that is just the, the coal price continues to sink globally. And so the ability of companies like Adani to raise money for projects like this, which obviously have huge infrastructure costs, is very limited. And so at this stage... You know, Adani are claiming, you know, they're constantly putting out press releases about their contribution to the Australian economy. They've got support from our government in Queensland. They've got support from the Australian government. So there's a lot of political support. But in terms of actual financial backing, that's where they're really, really lacking. And I think unless something turns around for the coal price, then it's going to be very difficult for the Carmichael mine to proceed. Well, that would be good. What about the Australian media? Is it backing more dirty coal? Absolutely. I mean, we have a media in Australia that's very dominated by Rupert Murdoch, which is why, like, community and alternative media is really, really important. We have, you know, some of the most monopolised media in the world. And there's such an interesting split between reading the finance pages when no one's advising investing in resource projects, and yet you have the front pages of the paper and the politicians in Parliament constantly talking about the, you know, mining being the backbone of the economy, you know, coal being crucial for humanity. You know, we're very, very backwards thinking in Australia on this particular issue because essentially of the political power of the mining industry and their inability to 
allow a debate within the community about what the future of coal is in this country. And that has all sorts of implications, not just for how progressed we can be on our climate change initiatives, but it also has implications for those workers whose jobs are really threatened. And the coal industry is completely in denial about that fact. You know, there were already Australians are being laid off who work in the coal mines. And instead of thinking about a transition for those workers and how that might be managed, because the industry is refusing to talk about the fact that its future might be in trouble, none of those workers are being looked after. So it's politically irresponsible on so many levels, but it's certainly one of the challenges that we face in trying to talk about these issues. Well, let me tell you, here in Canada, our former prime minister was very ignorant about the climate, and he got us banking entirely on the tar sands oil as the basis of our economy. And the people in the pension plans who invested in that are losing almost everything. Our economy is on the skids. Our dollar is crashing. And I can see Australia going just the same way if coal is thought to be the future of anything. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, you can just see the kind of perverse economic decisions that are being made at the moment in the sense of, you know, like companies are like choosing to expand production in order to squeeze any profit that they can out of a depressed market. And yet that's causing the price to go down further. But, you know, there are some, you know, we were talking about Adani before, who is really pushing this project ahead. But he's also investing heavily in solar in in India and he's even actually looking at some solar projects in Australia as well. So people who understand how energy investment is working are actually, you know, even those people who are implicated in some of these coal projects are also looking at what some of the alternatives might be. And so obviously there's, there's decisions being made all the time about, you know, where we're going to put our money and what's the best economic path for our country. But we're just not seeing political leadership. We're not seeing business elite leadership. Certainly um, in Australia, it sounds like a similar situation in Canada. Well, as you mentioned, there have been terrible bushfires again this year in Australia. That's the new normal, and there are uncontrolled fires raking Tasmania again as we speak. Surely there are a lot of Australians who realize their own coal industry is partly responsible for the record heat, the unpleasantness, the fires, and and the threats of the coming floods of coastal cities. Yeah, I mean... I think there's a widespread level of concern about climate change in Australia. We have battled not only climate scepticism from all levels of the government and business elite, as I was saying. You know, we um, had a previous Prime Minister who was sceptical about these issues and got strong, strong climate sceptics within the Conservative Party in Australia. But we've also had problems actually translating a level of community concern into policy that people are convinced works. And so that's been part of the issue for it as well in Australia is that we had, for example, the proposal for emissions trading scheme, which is, you know, was subsequently abolished. And it's been, there's been lots of false starts in Australia in terms of getting action on climate. And we still see a real reluctance for people in Australia to link bushfires and floods and high temperatures, which have always been part of Australian life, but we're seeing them in such extremes. And it does really feel like we are like, you know, 20 years behind where we need to be in terms of people's awareness of that. But yes, we're facing like, there's obviously the really, really shocking and tragic bushfire events, but there's also just the mortality from from simple heat waves, which are just becoming such a regular feature of the Australian summer in places that they weren't previously. I mean, Australia is such an interesting country because it's so, so much at the front line of climate change impacts in all sorts of ways, as you've mentioned. And yet also at the same time, you know, not only just pushing coal out 
export, but also like grandstanding for fossil fuels globally as well. It's just, you know, it's unbelievably tragic. <laughs> well, mind you, there was a great big climate march in Melbourne around the Paris talk, so there is plenty of climate awareness in Australia. We've just got to get it lined up somehow. Now, look, your organisation is called Get Up with an ex- exclamation mark. Tell us why it's called that and what your group does. Well, um, actually started around 10 years ago and essentially to provide a voice for Progressive Australia that was not party political and that was really looking at how to mobilise digital technologies. The first campaign that GetUp ever worked on, I don't know whether you will, of course you would remember the horrific institution at Guantanamo Bay and some of the gross human rights abuses that were part of the war on terror and there was an Australian in Guantanamo Bay called David Hicks and that was really the first campaign that Get Up worked on and mobilised Australians around that particular issue because both of the major parties in Australia can both be very conservative on social and economic issues, both, you know, free market, both, for example, at the moment, another issue that Get Up's really working on strongly is the issue of refugees and, you know, the, the horrific things that Australia does in offshoring detention centres in Pacific Islands around Australia. I don't know whether your listeners would have heard of that. So, you know, there can be a strong, you know, hegemony between the two major political parties. And so we wanted to provide a strong voice for Progressive Australia. We've now got over a million members. But certainly climate change, when we survey our members, is really a, really a number the number one concern and the thing that, that Get Up members really want action on. Please tell us the website, the Facebook page or the Twitter feed to follow your group. Well, the website is getup.org.au. And if you want to look at our Facebook page, you can just look for Get Up! exclamation mark and you should be able to find us. And we've got some really great content there if people are interested in following that as well. And our Twitter handle is just um, at getup. From Queensland, Australia, we've been talking with Ellen Roberts from the group Get Up. Thank you so much for joining us, Ellen. Thank you so much to your listeners and thanks very much for your interest in, in our issue. I'm Alex Smith reporting for Radio EcoShock. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. If it makes you feel any better, the Adani Group in India have announced they will delay opening their super coal mines in Australia and the new coal port. Perhaps they've noticed that stock and coal companies around the world have crashed so badly that many are going bankrupt. The Australian government is still optimistic, though. They hope they can crash the world climate with more coal. This adds to my conviction that only a major economic crash can possibly stop this civilization from environmental suicide. Let's move on. If you need water, just turn on a tap. Take as much as you want. Unless, of course, you're one of the four billion people on this planet who often can't. You heard that right. A new study from the Netherlands is titled Four Billion People Facing Severe Water Scarcity. It's just another jaw-dropping signal from a real world in trouble. Dr. Arjen Hoekstra co-authored the paper with Mesfin McConan. I think it's safe to say that Dr. Hoekstra is a world authority on water use. His latest book, The Water Footprint of Modern Consumer Society, was translated into Chinese, with his other titles appearing in many languages. He advises governments and international institutions like UNESCO and the World Bank. He founded the Water Footprint Network, and he's a professor of water management at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. Arjen, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Why don't we start with some of the startling numbers from your latest paper? 
When we talk about four billion people, what are you really saying they experience? They experience what we call severe water scarcity during at least part of the year. So severe water scarcity means that the the water footprint, the, the water consumption in a certain place where people live is larger than the water availability. And we measure this uh, this water footprint in relation to water availability uh, for every month in the year. So we measure that 4 billion people face severe water scarcity during at least one month a year. And where are most of those people? Where do they live? Now, they are really living all over the world, including in, uh, in Mexico and the western U.S., uh, definitely uh, the north of Africa, the southern Africa, the Middle East, India, China, Australia, so many places. But one billion people of those four live in India and 0.9 live in China. So these are really the hotspots. We know some countries experience a crippling shortage of fresh water all year round. And many of these countries also have civil war or terrorism or very unstable governments. Surely that's no coincidence. Yeah, there, there is often talk about the relation between uh, water scarcity and, and water uh, wars. Uh, but wars are generally fought around uh, political issues, religion and what, whatsoever. But of course, somehow there, there, there is sometimes a relation between the fact that you do have uh, scarcity of resources in those countries and that there is uh, that there are, are problems really between communities as well. So it's not a direct relation, but some sort of indirect relation uh, sometimes does exist, yeah. How do you define what severe scarcity means? A severe water, what we really measure is, is water consumption. And we call that the, the, the water footprint in every place on earth uh, in every month and we compare that to the water availability so in fact we divide uh, water consumption through water availability and if that goes beyond one beyond 100 percent then we have moderate scarcity if it really goes beyond twice then we call it severe scarcity so severe scarcity is really uh, water consumption far beyond what is available so how do the results of this new paper compare with previous studies that the United Nations and other governments have relied on? Now, the, the previous studies um, always looked at annual water use and annual water availability uh, because statistics didn't allow to do a more accurate uh, estimates on a monthly basis as we have done. Uh, the problem with the annual uh, comparison between water use and water availability is that you count yourself too rich because the scarcity occurs always during part of the year, the dry, the dry part of the year. Uh, well, if you, if you look at the annual water availability, you also count the huge amounts of flood water that may exist in the, in the wet period of the year. But scarcity really becomes manifest uh, not during the whole year generally, although in some areas it does, but generally it's, it's during part of the year. You know, this reminds me of a recent interview I did on a climate study which also looked at how the global mean really didn't mean very much. What really matters is what happens in the country where you are and where you're trying to live. Do you see some comparisons there to how you've zeroed in on the information? 
Yes, somewhere in the paper we write, water scarcity is locally experienced. And, and this phrase that shows what we actually mean. We, we zoom in on certain areas and we zoom in uh, into specific periods in the year. And in this way, you can really see the mismatch between uh, demand, water demand and water supply. Uh, and, and the whole picture gets obscured if you go to larger spatial scales or if you look at the, the year as a whole. One part of your study, Arian, puzzled me. It says, quote, In many river basins, for instance, the Ganges Basin in India, the Limpopo Basin in southern Africa, and the Murray-Darling Basin in Australia, blue water consumption and blue water availability are counter-cyclical, with water consumption being highest when water availability is lowest. Arian, can you explain that for us, please? Yeah, yeah, that that sounds uh, mystical and, uh, and counterintuitive because in economics, normally what you expect if demand is high, then the supply will be high. <laughs> and this is our our expectation. But for water, it is just the other way around because the water is given by the precipitation. So if you have a lot of rain, you will not have a lot of demand for water, for instance, for irrigating uh, irrigation in agriculture. Well, if there is no water, because there is no rain, then you need irrigation water. So that's why this is the the counter-cyclic phenomenon that uh, occurs in the case of water. And we know humans are diverting so much water that a few major rivers no longer reach the sea, and large lakes have disappeared. Could you just give us a couple of examples of that? Uh, yeah, in the U.S., a uh, famous example is the Colorado River that uh, often doesn't flow into the sea many months of the year. In China, the Yellow River Basin. And then you have lakes like uh, the most famous example being the Aral Sea in Central Asia, which is uh, disappearing because the two uh, rivers that normally flow into the sea and maintain the sea, they don't flow into the sea anymore because they are drained for irrigating cotton fields. So there are many of those uh, those sorts of examples uh, around the world. And when humans use it all, what happens to the animals and plants who also need a share? Is that part of this study, or should it be? Um, no, we, we didn't elaborately look into uh, species going to disappear or whatsoever, because this is really another type of study again. But what we did look at is, um, what we call environmental water requirements. So if we look at the total water in the river, uh, we will not count everything as being available for human beings because a certain flow needs to be maintained in the river so that ecosystems can keep on striving on those water flows and also downstream uh, communities. So we, we look at the total runoff in the river, but we subtract the environmental water requirements, and then what is left we call available water. Using more water than there is seems impossible, yet cities like Greater London and Los Angeles do it. How does the growing international trend of megacity formation impact the patterns of water availability? Now, the water availability itself is is determined by by the climate, so the the water availability is not being impacted by megacities, but it is the the water demand side that is impacted. So what you see is concentration of people makes concentration of of water demand in those places, although a lot of the water demand of those people is kind of externalized 
to other places uh, far away, even other continents, because what we see is that the food, which we, uh, requires most of the water in the world, uh, is often being uh, produced in certain places and then exported to, to other continents to be uh, consumed in other places in, in megacities. So the, the water footprint of, of people in a megacity goes far beyond the area of the megacity itself. It's, it's placed all over the world in those places where the commodities are being produced that, that the people eat or, or otherwise consume. Yes, we've had experts say that Canada, for example, is not exporting wheat, it's exporting water. Yeah, not, not real water, but what we say is virtual water. Water is being used for making export products. And the same is, by the way, true for, for the U.S. A lot of water is being used for making export products, even though water is often very, very scarce, like in the western part of the U.S. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest from the Netherlands, Arjen Hoekstra. We're talking about his new paper titled Four Billion People Facing Severe Water Scarcity. Arjen, I'm wondering about the possibility of more abrupt water shortages. For example, farmers in parts of India and China are drilling deeper and deeper to suck out the groundwater. California does the same. Last year, some of those wells ran dry. Is there a point where groundwater will no longer make up for rainfall losses and could we reach that point sometime soon? Now, this is certainly happening in, in different places. However, you will not observe it as, as one point in time uh, at a global scale, because in every location where water is being overexploited, the moment where the water is really depleted in the ground uh, will be different. Uh, besides, it will be a bit slow process, whereby it becomes more and more difficult to get uh, the water we need. So the moment will not be a certain date in time, that in the future, in every place, uh, it will be a certain certain time where it becomes harder and harder to get uh, the last drop out of the, uh, out of the deep, uh, deep ground. And another comparatively abrupt cause of water shortage could be pollution of rivers and lakes, for example, did this study include rivers in China that may be too toxic to drink or unfit for irrigation? Now, the current study, we, uh, we didn't look at water pollution, but at water consumption and water depletion only. But in other studies, we are doing at the same time, we, we consider water pollution as well. And then I can confirm that indeed uh, the water pollution competes with the water consumption. So... If you consume a lot of water, of course you want to have it clean, but if at the same time you pollute the water, which happens in so many places with fertilizers, pesticides, or industrial or waste from cities, uh, if at the same time you pollute the water, then you even aggravate the, the water scarcity problem. And this whole picture, Arian, as bad as it is, could change with climate change. Are you picturing that in your recent study, or do you think that if you were to do this study 10 years from now, it would be different? Yeah, it will, it will be different. We didn't look at, uh, we, we looked at the current situation. Uh, in the future, climate change will impact in two ways. On the one hand, the, 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 the patterns of uh, evaporation will change because of the, the temperature changes, and the result also the patterns of precipitation will change. 
so the water availability will change, particularly uh, the wet areas, the wet periods become wetter, and the, the dry areas and dry periods of the year will become drier. Uh, on the other hand, the water demand patterns will change as well, because if you have uh, drier periods, longer periods with, with dryness or, or more places where you have lack of water, then the, the water demand in those places will increase. So there will be a lot of places where availability becomes less and demand becomes larger. What year of population for the number for population did this study use, and do you have projections that are also based on population growth? Yeah, this, 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 currently we, um, we estimate that two-thirds of the, the global population is facing severe water scarcity. But this is more or less linear, so population growth immediately will increase the number of people facing uh, scarcity. Now, in part of the conclusion of your study, you say, quote, assessing the sustainability of the water footprint along the supply chain of products and disclosing relevant information will become increasingly important for investors. So beyond human and ecological needs, talk to us briefly about the importance of this information for business. Now, yeah, companies are involved in this, and that's why also the the World Economic Forum, for instance, lists water crisis as one of the, the biggest risks to the global economy. And companies can take action because it's the companies that use uh, the water in their operations, either directly or they use it in their supply chains. And they can and should invest in uh, more efficient uh, water-using technology, which is fortunately, uh, in many cases, uh, easily possible. However, it needs investment. And increasingly, companies uh, see the risks of water scarcity to their own operations and supply chain. And increasingly, therefore, companies are indeed uh, exploring what they can and should do, which is, uh, which is a good sign. And investors, they should really think about including sustainable uh, water use criteria in their investment decisions, which currently they don't. In a previous paper you published with Weidemann in the journal Science, June 2014, you found that humanity's total environmental imprint, not just water use, was unsustainable. We all sense that's true, but how did you prove it? it prove um, what you can do is, uh, is just look in places where uh, you see groundwater levels uh, decline, and that is uh, the proof of unsustainability. Because if you have a declining groundwater level, then you can count your fingers that it will not continue forever. The water will be depleted. So there are many kind of uh, signs in the field that are clearly unsustainable. And and what we do is just show the numbers uh, backing that up. And as we get close to the finish here, I'm wondering what are the pressure points, the countries that are moving towards such extreme water stress that their economies or their political systems or maybe even their survival are at stake? Yeah, those, those uh, countries, they are generally aware of it, I must say, because China, India, they face major water scarcity and, and they know that. In China, I see uh, things are happening and moving forward. They have policies in place to make water use more efficient. In India, yeah, I see that much less. But surprisingly, in, in some industrialized countries, like in the U.S., you see uh, quite a lack of, uh, of action as well, because 
for instance, the, the Okalala Reservoir, the aquifer in, in the Midwest is being depleted. And you don't really see how the country is being prepared once the, the fossil aquifer is, uh, is depleted. Uh, and the same what happens in California. There's a lot of talk about drought, but of course the, the reason why there are problems is because the water demand is far too high because of the agriculture there still going on. So something needs to happen and policies need to be in place. And it's not only developing countries that are running behind but also, uh, also industrialized countries need to, need to take action. Yes, we spoke to a scientist who, using the NASA GRACE satellites, had measured that, the, that California weighs less. So much water has been sucked out of the ground. Yeah, so interesting. Eh? You can even measure it from a distance in terms of the reduced gravity of the Earth because of the reduced amount of water present. Is there anything else you would like to add or a final message for our listeners? No, I think for, for just listeners, they will definitely ask what they can do by themselves, apart from asking companies to become more transparent about their direct and indirect water use and ask governments for better regulation of water resources. I think consumers can look at their own personal water footprint and check what kind of elements in their overall consumption cost so much water and they will quickly find out that uh, things like meat or, or dairy products require a lot of water. So if you reduce your consumption there, you can save a lot of water. From the Netherlands, we've been talking with world water consumption expert Dr. Arjen Hoekstra at the University of Twente. His latest book is The Water Footprint of Modern Consumer Society. We've been discussing his new paper with co-author Mesfin McConan, titled Four Billion People Facing Severe Water Scarcity, that was published January 29th in the journal Science Advances. Find links to follow up in my Radio EcoShock blog at ecoshock.info. Arian, thank you so much for sharing your time with us on Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Radio EcoShock. Why am I back talking about the wave of nuclear plant construction in China? First of all, most of us do care about other people, even on the other side of the world. A nuclear plant accident among tens of millions of people could be the greatest tragedy ever seen. It's bound to happen eventually. When it does, there will be no place to go. Those millions will continue to live in radioactive hot zones. If you still don't care... Remember that the plume of very radioactive dust spread from Fukushima in Japan all the way around the world. Uranium from Fukushima was found in New England, and radiation arrived in Europe and Scandinavia. A nuclear accident anywhere in the northern hemisphere pollutes that whole hemisphere for thousands of years. Now maybe you care what happens in China, where dozens of reactors with new designs never successfully run anywhere else are being built right now. Lately, there have been riots on the streets of Hong Kong. It's about freedom of speech, about continuing a free market, about a way of life. Behind it all, there is a growing dark shadow of worry about the new reactors being built right next door on the mainland. Radio EcoShock investigates. China is still expanding fast, maybe too fast. Many Hong Kong residents worry about a wave of new atomic reactors being built on the mainland. With our expert guest, Michael Schneider, we've already reviewed some of the threats posed by different nuclear technologies that are growing up in China. Now, let's get a report on how this is seen in Hong Kong. Stuart Heaver is a journalist with the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. 
His article in the Post magazine, January 10, 2016, alerted me to this underreported nuclear danger. Stuart, thank you for joining us on Radio EcoShock. My pleasure, Alex. Does Hong Kong use nuclear power for electricity? Yes, very much so. Hong Kong has been part of China's nuclear power scene since 1994, when a, uh, I think it was the first nuclear power plant called Daya Bay opened. It was a French technology that was employed, and uh, it now supplies around about uh, 25% of Hong Kong's uh, electricity needs, and has done, as I say, since 1994. Are there other nuclear plants already operating relatively near to your city? Yes, there are. I think that's what has raised a lot of concern locally. Whilst people were, if not in favour of Dyer Bay, uh, they have perhaps at least uh, got used to it since 1994. But the pace of change and the pace of growth in nuclear power plants and nuclear reactors in Guangdong province, which is the the neighbouring Chinese province just next door to Hong Kong, has been quite astonishing. So that uh, people now feel very uneasy, almost hemmed in or surrounded by by a new generation of of nuclear power plants, which are raising a lot of tricky questions amongst people, and they're not getting the right answers. How many reactors we're talking about in Guangdong province? Is it uh, five or ten or... No, not at all. I mean, since uh, Dyer Bay was built in 94, which is one plant, two nuclear reactors, there's actually now uh, three plants, six nuclear reactors on that same site, uh, which a lot of people in Hong Kong weren't even aware of. Plus, there are another eight uh, under construction, and there are another 16 uh, being proposed or planned. So this is not a small number, and all of these are within uh, 150 kilometers of the center of Hong Kong, and the other thing you, I think you have to be aware of if you're not a, a local of these parts is that uh, Guangdong province is really um, dominated by the Pearl River Estuary, a major industrial belt with Guangzhou, the major city formerly known as Canton at the, at the northern part of it. And this is a very urbanized, very industrial area with about a population of around about 120 million people. So this is not a, a remote rural location in, in, in upstate China. This is a, a major developed populous part of China where there are, there are being built lots of nuclear power plants. One of them being the Taishan nuclear power plant. It's using French technology, and the French company Arriva just admitted there is a serious, very serious problem right at the core of the reactor for these things, the European pressurized reactors. Has this been made public in China? Uh, No, not at all, Alex. Uh, uh, And this has really focused everybody's concerns in this part of the world, because Taishan 1 and 2 should be up and running and operating. And we only really know about the problems due to the nuclear regulator in France, um, not the nuclear regulator in China. And the concern is that there just isn't any transparency. Whilst the two similar nuclear power plants in Europe, in uh, Flamanville in France and and the one in Finland, have been exposed to press scrutiny and and, uh, public interest, Taishan 1 and 2, which uses exactly the same technology, is subject to exactly the same very serious design faults and technical problems, isn't exposed to any transparency or scrutiny other than a very brief statement made to the Hong Kong stock market about uh, delays to its opening for the benefit of their investors. And I think this is what's worrying people. It's not so much a pro or anti-nuclear discussion. It's, you know, what's going on? We're only 80 kilometers away. If something goes wrong here, this is going to affect us, uh, and we have a right to know what's happening. 
And China is also going to be the testing ground for the new Westinghouse AP1000. They're the so-called third-generation reactors. There's none of them actually working in the world at this point. It's almost like the government decided to try one or two of everything to see what works and what doesn't. But of course, it's a terrible thing when you find out what doesn't. Well, it is, and、uh, and I think it's the combination of the pace of growth and the multiple unproven technologies that should be proven. I mean, the idea was, I think, that Ariba's even got on its website at the moment that this is great news for China because this technology is proven、uh, in France and in Finland, and they've got so much experience they're actually going to knock forty months off the project cycle. I mean, it's complete nonsense because neither of those two European stations are open; they're all subject to delays and overruns, and so the first ever. EPR, as it's called, could be in Taishan, and the first Westinghouse AP1000,、um, although that's delayed and over budget as well. I understand the first of those will also be in China. So there's a there's a lot of concern about that, the unproven technology,、uh, the, the the lack of transparency, and the, and the third thing that really worries people around here is this thing called culture of safety. You know, we have a lot of industrial accidents on, in mainland China. They're reported regularly in in the newspaper I work for and other newspapers. And、uh, that doesn't give people a whole degree of confidence that this is the right place for unproven technology developing at a rapid pace. But you know, if I go out on the street where I live and and want to talk to people about nuclear power, they don't want to talk about it. It's just so horrible. People want to look away. I wonder, has there been more discussion in Hong Kong after the 2011 and ongoing Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan? I think it's probably similar here to to other parts of the world that there was a great deal of concern、uh, post Fukushima in March 2011, and then people sort of went off the boil. This is a, a very busy commercial city; people are very concerned and active about their economic well-being, as in other parts of the world. So it's not something that's constantly in the headlines, but it has been a thorny political issue in the past. I mean, there were a million signatures signed in Hong Kong objecting to Dia Bay opening in 1994. And I think a recent government survey showed that only about 35% of people had any confidence in the safety procedures for Dia Bay nuclear power plants at all. So it bubbles under the surface. There is a lot of concern here. There was a lot of ignorance actually about、uh, the rate of growth in Guangdong Province because actually nobody nobody tells you anything. So、um, so I think it's bubbling under the surface. And I think the Taishan one and two issue and the specific concerns about that have, have brought them to the surface again. Who are some of the Chinese critics of this rush to nuclear power, and what are they saying? Well, I think the critics are, if you like, it's, it's the people you would expect to criticise. Is that in, in Hong Kong,、uh, far more so than in mainland China, there's a healthy group of NGOs, the people, the names you would sort of recognise,、uh, like Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, that, that have always been sceptical about nuclear power. But there are other more local、uh, lobby groups and, and、uh, advocacy groups. There's one called Pro Commons, read,、uh, led by a civil engineer called Albert Lai, who's been consistently、um, vocal in his concerns about nuclear power and its maturity, and his concerns about dealing with nuclear waste. And I think a lot of these groups are again focusing around the issue of untested technology and lack of transparency, rather than. Purely focusing on, you know, we don't want nuclear per se because this is actually beyond Hong Kong's control. If the mainland decides to build、uh, nuclear power plants to meet its、uh, climate change commitments and to meet its energy growing energy demands, there's not a lot Hong Kong can do about it. But we can at least、uh, request some more transparency and, and demand and expose that the technology that's being used is at least proven. Are you aware of the debate about building nuclear reactors? At sites inland in China, using major rivers for cooling, 
I'm less familiar with that because uh, I work in southern China in Hong Kong, so and, and the research I did was very much focused on Guangdong province. But I am aware that it's considered to be far more controversial, and there is actually one inland plant in Guangdong province at a place called Hujiao, which, incredibly, uh, is actually a, a location that is uh, common for earthquakes to occur. I think one researcher or one research website called Earthquake Track showed that there have been 30 earthquakes in the Hujiao area in the last 30 years. The last one was in September 2012. So even in this part of China, um, and China, as, I, as you know, is a huge country, there is a specific concern about inland plants if they are not in places that, are, that you have confidence are going to be immune from external natural threats. We have the same problem in California where reactors were built on earthquake zones and uh, a couple of those have closed and there's one more to go. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest Stuart Heaver from the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. You know, Stuart, reactors are closing in the West and nuclear company stocks have crashed, really crashed. Why do you think China is going nuclear when the rest of the world is backing away from it? I don't think that's any mystery, uh, Alex. I think it's China feels under an enormous amount of pressure to get its uh, climate change and its air pollution act together. I mean, I know those are two very different subjects that sometimes get mixed up, but they're both relevant in China because China is growing very, very rapidly. I mean, there is one, to give you an idea for those listeners in the West, I mean, there's one city that na- uh, neighboring Hong Kong called Shenzhen, Shenzhen is a, is a new town, and uh, in 1980, it became a new special economic zone. And at that stage, it was a cluster of hamlets. There was nothing in Shenzhen at all. Now it is a modern metropolis of 14 million people. That's double the size of Hong Kong and bigger than most cities uh, in Europe. You know, the pace of change in China, the pace of growth is startling. And when you're here, you see it on a daily basis. And all of those people, all of that growth, all of those factories, they need energy, they need electricity, it's got to come from somewhere. And you double against that the pressure to not be the world's major contributor of greenhouse gases. And only 12% of China's energy mix at the moment comes from non-fossil fuels, even though they're putting a lot of energy and investment into renewables as well as nuclear. So this is a this is a a big place for the rest of the world's nuclear salesmen to come knocking because China's under big pressure to find alternatives to fossil fuels to power its growth. And uh, the rest of the nuclear industry, as you quite rightly point out, isn't in great shape. So they're all getting on the plane from the US and from Europe, all bound for China to sell their latest goodies. I think they're hoping it will rescue the industry. Well, If a nuclear accident happened, and I pray that it never does, is there any realistic way to evacuate the city? Uh, that hardly bears thinking about. I mean, anybody that has visited Hong Kong knows that it's a very, very densely populated, high-rise, crowded place. I mean, it would be absolutely catastrophic. I mean, to be fair to the Hong Kong government, there is something called a Dia Bay Contingency Plan. I don't think many people in Hong Kong have heard of it or are aware of it, but there is uh, an emergency evacuation plan. You can look at it on the website. It's pretty half-hearted, I think it'd be fair to say. I mean, the, the news updates haven't been touched since July 2014. I think the last practice run was shortly after Fukushima when the public were, were more acutely concerned of the risks of uh, nuclear power. So 
there is a contingency plan in place. It doesn't look particularly robust. I spoke to people that had attended the last drill and said it was very relaxed. People were standing around laughing, giggling, you know, smoking cigarettes. It, it, this wasn't a really a, uh, you know, a, a very serious uh, professional drill. If there was any type of nuclear incident in Guangdong province, particularly if it was one of the six reactors in the Dia Bay site, to one which is run by a Hong Kong company, which I think on the whole people have a high degree of confidence in, the other four reactors not run by a Hong Kong company uh, and we have very little control of, if there was a problem there, it would be absolutely catastrophic, not just in Hong Kong, the 7.1 7 million people. Next door to Hong Kong, you've got Shenzhen, 14 million people, plus another uh, cluster of major conurbations in between those two cities and adjacent to those two cities. You know, it would be an almighty disaster. When the Chernobyl reactor blew up in the Ukraine, the government told no one. Four days later, the Swedes discovered radiation in the air. Given the secrecy that we know in China, a reactor accident could happen without people knowing, at least for a little while. Is that a concern for people in Hong Kong as well? I think it's a huge concern. Uh, at the moment, there is a voluntary protocol. Uh, Greenpeace actually wrote a letter to the Hong Kong government asking specifically what was happening with the Taishan plant and to outline what safeguards Hong Kong had or Hong Kong government had about developments, problems, uh, safety issues, and indeed uh, major emergencies uh, with the new plants being constructed in, in Guangdong province. And they weren't very satisfied with the answer. It was pretty woolly. And uh, there is a voluntary protocol which has been adopted for the what are called the Lingao reactors, which are the non-Hong Kong operated nuclear plants at Dia Bay, which is very close, less than 50 kilometers from the center of Hong Kong. And there is a voluntary protocol, so they will release notices saying this has happened or that has happened. But there's nothing, there's nothing in law, there's, nothing, there's no regulation as such for any of the others. So as you say, the, if there could be a minor incident, there'd be a huge temptation by the uh, regulators in China, I'm sure, to hush it up or at least to play it down. There's no scrutiny from the media. I can't go as a journalist and just pop up in... Uh, like a try, <laughs> get me very far to one of these plants on the mainland and start asking questions and taking photographs of these plants. It's just not possible. You know, you can't, as a member of the public, go and uh, start having a demonstration outside, or you can try, but you, you probably wouldn't dare. So it's a very different culture in terms of sharing information and transparency. And I think, as I say, that's one of the, the big issues that uh, you put your finger on, one of the big, issue that, big issues that worries people in, in Hong Kong. Mind you, to be fair, I don't want to pick on China because I can't go to a nuclear plant in North America and start taking pictures. I'll be arrested as a, a possible terrorist. Uh, there's no way that I can get any straight answers from the industry either. So things leak out here, but it's it's pretty tight around the world as far as that goes. So are there constructive actions that citizens or local governments could take to maybe reduce some of the big risks with this nuclear technology. Do you have any ideas on what should be done? Well, actually, I don't. Uh, it, it's a big worry. And, and as you quite rightly say, the nuclear industry anywhere in the world isn't exactly open about uh, what it's doing with its business. As a, as a journalist, I've tried to approach companies like Areva. I've never yet had a reply to any email or to any phone call. Um, the nuclear safety regulator in France was good enough to confirm that their boss had been for emergency bilateral talks in China uh, last July. But apart from that, it's very difficult to find out what's going on, I agree with you, in all parts of the world. I think the subtle difference is that a commercial company in the West is open to some sort of press scrutiny. It has to publish its results, and it's also responsible to its shareholders and has to advise them of what's happening. And I think, in a way, 
that's our best hope, that a lot of the money for this investment was raised in Shanghai, but also on the Hong Kong stock market. This is you know, private big business money run by and you know, organized by people like Deutsches Bank, you know, all these big financial houses we all have heard of in the West. So they have to report and comply with those financial regulations. They the same in China as if they would have to in, in New York or London. And I think that's a hope that if those uh, rules can be tightened up and go beyond purely financial reporting to environmental and safety reporting, we have a hope of getting better standards and better confidence in terms of transparency. But apart from that, all we can do is campaign. Uh, the, the citizen of Hong Kong doesn't have any political sway or any um, influence in mainland China's energy policy, uh, and so we're, we're pretty impotent. Stuart, as we wrap up, is there anything I've missed that you would like to add? Well, Alex, I think the concern here in Hong Kong, that the, that the combination of factors, you know, the, the pace of growth, this absence of what people call the, you know, the culture of safety, the fact we get a lot of industrial accidents, a huge one in Tianjin where 173 people were killed, I think, last September in a, in a huge series of explosions in the chemical storage depot. Uh, we've had a huge mudslide with 53 people missing in Shenzhen, the, the, the big city just neighboring Hong Kong. So there's a lot of concern about in the culture of safety generally in, in industry in the mainland. And then you had the lack of transparency and the huge financial and political capital tied up in this industry, the huge amounts of investment and political handshaking, leaders of state signing the agreements. And it all adds up to a, to a sort of feeling of unease that you, know, you really don't want this to be a recipe for a, what would be an absolutely terrible disaster. Well, and I think as we've seen in Japan, all it takes is one large accident and the whole industry can be shut down and the financial ramifications for that uh, on the Hong Kong stock market, but in the Chinese stock market, would be huge as well, not to mention the human costs. So from Hong Kong, we have been talking with Stuart Heaver. He's a journalist with the South China Morning Post. You can find a link to Stuart's excellent article on nuclear worries in Hong Kong in my Radio EcoShock blog, published every Wednesday at ecoshock.info. Thank you so much for helping us out on Radio EcoShock. It's my pleasure, Alex. Uh, very nice talking to you. I'm Alex Smith reporting. As you hear this, alarm bells are going off around the world about the economy. Major banks admit they are in crisis mode. Some big names like Deutsche Bank may fail. But the real emergency is not even being talked about. Our fossil-powered civilization is losing soil, water, breathable air, ocean life, land species, a livable climate, and time to do anything about it. An economic crash is small news compared to the crash of the ecosphere. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. system. I may be the beat. Go on about your business. We will never meet. Why should I go along with you? You come streaming from a cloud. You come screaming right out loud. You're always around in the scene on the screen. Why should I tune into that?
dancing. Do your fancy dancing. Keep the people in a trance. Why should I? Why should I go down with you? 